What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post, and I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, we have an incredible rundown uh, for our show here in the Thanksgiving holiday week. I am so thankful not only for news, but also for the Open Floor Globe members who stepped up with some amazing emails, some hilarious emails, and actually a lot of personal tales about how they listen to us, the different types of podcast genres that we were looking for that I didn't even know exist are definitely out there. Um, On top of all that, by the way, I got about five angry emails from people telling me that I'm not a complete person because I don't know how to cook. And that was very humbling. And I spent a lot of time this weekend, uh, you know, really marinating on that, uh, to use a, a cooking pun. And frankly, this is why I have to talk to you, Michael, because you do cook and potentially you could influence my life in a positive way. I think I might have overinflated my ability to cook, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> five my, my, star Michelin's chef, right, or whatever they call exactly. it. Exactly. I don't use a microwave anymore, which I think is a huge step up. But my wife is the big cook in the house, so she's the one who usually prepares meals that I eat and enjoy. And uh, so, yeah, I don't want to give myself too much credit here. Yeah, well, I found that out because your wife emailed me to call me a bum, saying that I only cook Trader Joe's in the microwave. So thanks a lot for that, uh, Mrs. Pina. But on a more serious note, uh, we had some news over the weekend. An early morning, uh, you know, Saturday morning, uh, Woj and Low Bomb, Adrian Wojnarowski and Zach Lowe of ESPN.com reported that NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and the National Basketball Players Association, the Players Union, are discussing major structural changes that could be implemented in the 2021-2022 season. Now, I know some people are going to say, okay, cool, call me once it's actually done. It's five years from now or whatever else. We don't have to worry about this. But these ideas have been percolating from Silver for years. I mean, he's been floating them out for a while. And I think the timing here is very interesting because the NBA's early season ratings were not good. Um I think that there's probably some concern about, okay, what's the state of the league going to look like if the Lakers are off to an incredible start, LeBron James is playing his best basketball in seven years, and the NBA is struggling to get a million people to watch its nationally televised games. That seems like uh, not the best situation in the world. So it's clear to me from the timing of this news and the fact that it could be voted on at the next Board of Governors meeting in April, that the NBA is basically ready to act. Like they've got their plan. They know how they're going to sell it to the owners because it does involve potentially short, shortening the schedule. Um, and this is going to become something that we should all just start getting adjusted to. So there are three main elements to this plan, Michael. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you one of the governors, right? So we're going to pretend it's the April Board of Governors meetings. These proposals are on the table, and you're going to need to vote thumbs up or thumbs down to the three major proposals uh, that Adam Silver is looking at. Does that make sense? That's perfect. Okay, we're going to start with uh, what I think is actually the one that I'm most passionate about, and it's reseeding the playoffs for the conference finals round. Now, I've been an advocate on this show for years that they should just take the top 16 teams, regardless of conference, rank them 1-16 to by record, and that should be the playoffs. Adam Silver has said he's open to that idea in the past, but he's expressed concerns about the travel logistics. How can you pull this all together? You know, the the case everybody loves to bring up is, what if Portland and Miami had to play a first-round series? They're going to be flying, you know, all day, every day. Um... It seems like this proposal basically is a compromise. They're going to leave the playoffs as is for the first two rounds, 
but they will reseed during the conference finals by record. So you could have a situation where, you know, two Western Conference teams or, or sorry, uh, you know, a Western Conference team and an Eastern Conference team play each other in the conference finals. And then you could get a situation where two Western Conference teams or two Eastern Conference teams could therefore meet uh, in the NBA Finals. A classic example for this would be 2018, when you had Golden State and Houston play a seven-game Western Conference Finals, followed up by Golden State sweeping the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Finals. Obviously, from a TV perspective, a revenue perspective, having a competitive seven-game final series is way better for the league than having a sweep. Uh, and it was a, situ- a situation where if you had reseeded the teams uh, that year, uh, I think Houston would have been the number one seed, Golden State would have been number two, Cleveland would have been number three, and Boston would have been number four. That would have actually set up the scenario where Houston and Golden State could have played in the NBA Finals that year. So that's a, an example of how it actually could have improved the league uh, you know, from the recent past. But what you lose from this, Michael, is the traditionalism, you know, the the regional rivalries all the way through, the history of always having a Western Conference Finals and an Eastern Conference Finals, and potentially you do marginalize, uh, you know, one conference uh, versus the other if, if one happens to be stronger that year. So I'm curious, taking all of that into account, are you in favor of the reseeding compromise that Adam Silver is putting forward for the Conference Finals, or are you against I'm very pro on this. I, I, I'm i not as pro on the 1 through 16 reseed just because, I don't know, I feel like there are a lot of teams and it's probably their own fault in the Eastern Conference that just would never make the playoffs and their <laughs> fans would stop watching the NBA and that wouldn't be great for anyone. Um, but I love this. Uh, I mean... I think it's awesome to force players and coaches that are less familiar with each other to potentially prep one round earlier, uh, you know, opposite conferences going against each other in, in the, the semifinals instead of the finals. Is it, it just lends itself to more exciting basketball, generally speaking. And then I also like how, you know, you have... A situation where Michael Jordan or LeBron James basically block anybody else from competing at the highest level in the finals for the duration of their primes. And this kind of lends itself to cracking the door open for one of those teams to have success in a conference finals. And then, uh, you know, anything could happen in the finals after that. So I think it's a really good idea. I think it spices things up. I think it's it's a compromise. It's not perfect, but uh, it... It, it, it makes the, the 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 final four much more interesting and could lend itself to creating more more creative matchups. I think. I think you make a great point. I mean, imagine how much a player like James Harden's reputation is different is if he doesn't have to go through Steph Curry and those Warriors year after year after year. If he has a path to the finals, sure, it might involve beating LeBron and you know Cleveland teams that are still really good. But if you had your choice, if you're hard, and you probably take facing some of those Cleveland teams versus facing Golden State's team, you know, where they've been these last couple of years. And, you know, if he makes two finals over the past five years, his reputation is totally different. Uh, so your point about the blocking is very well taken. It's also a situation where some of these top teams could have more incentive to win games late in the season, right? Uh, to make mm-hmm. sure that they can get a top two overall seed to avoid the other best team, um, you know, if they potentially would have to face off in the playoffs. So I think that could possibly be a benefit. And and I will say this, like the teams that get left out here are, you know, often the Western Conference, like nine, 10 seeds where they're getting snubbed for the playoffs. 
instead of you know weaker Eastern Conference teams like the six, seven, and eight in the East sometimes have worse records than the West nine and ten. That's always bugged me because it hasn't felt fair. But ultimately, those teams' chances of actually making deep playoff runs and winning a title are pretty low. They should not be the priority. The NBA's priority in this should be maximizing its chances at having the best possible finals matchup, period. You want to have your two best teams, if at all possible. You want to give them the best shot of facing off um, so that that premier showcase event, which draws you know hundreds of media members from around the world, and it really winds up being sort of the signature moment of your whole season, can go as swimmingly as possible. And I think we've had some situations here over the last decade where that just hasn't been the case. Now, some years it goes great. I mean, San Antonio, Miami, brilliant series. Uh, You know, uh, Golden State, Cleveland, a couple of those were classics, right? But some of them weren't. And putting yourself in a situation where uh, you can get the best possible matchup uh, is definitely better for the league. So I vote up and you vote up too, right? I do. Yeah. Great. So I'm glad we've changed the league. Fantastic. Now, Beautiful. The, second, the second proposal, a midseason tournament that would feature all 30 teams that would take place between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So the idea is that sometimes the NBA front loads the schedule to have an amazing opening month, right? But maybe interest starts to wane a little bit because the schedule is so long once you get to kind of Thanksgiving and before you hit that Christmas showcase event. So you would sort of rebrand some of these regular season games as like tournament games or cup games, and you would give all 30 teams the opportunity to win something um, besides just uh, a championship, right? And if you go into any given season, there's probably five, six, seven teams that feel like they can win a title, but maybe not quite as many who feel like, uh, you know, their their season's necessarily like a game-by-game, you know, something where they need to be locked in like night after night. This tournament would maybe give some of those second and third tier teams the opportunity to sell their fan base on, uh, you know, success or winning. I mean, there's a situation like with the Washington Wizards, right? They've got this number two offense and basically like the worst defense in the league. Like, is it completely impossible that they get red hot from on offense for like two weeks in November and December as a young upstart team and win this little tournament? And that, you know, gives them something to be happy about. Um, Is it impossible that they win the title this year? Of course, like they're definitely not going to win the title, right? So can you, you know, keep, uh, more fan bases invested and, uh, you know, find new ways to sell sponsorships around kind of rebranding a certain element of your schedule uh, as a tournament. Uh, that's kind of the concept here, Michael. I know it sounds a little bit muddled, but that's what we've got to work with. What do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm pretty down on this. I mean, I, I, I don't watch soccer for many reasons, um, one of which I, I don't know when the games are on. I don't really understand the game. I find it a little bore- boring. Um, no offense to anyone who loves it, but uh, another huge reason is I never know how important the match is that's, that's being played, How what the stakes are. And like I, I, I'm skeptical that players and coaches uh, will buy in and actually treat these mini tournaments as valuable experiences. And uh, I mean, if this is done to increase revenue so that you can shorten the season down to 66 games or a number like that, which doesn't seem to be the target right now, then that's great. But if not, and you're just doing it to appease shorter attention spans or possibly curb load management uh, and, and try to get players and teams to invest and, and actually compete every night, then 
I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think that's possible, uh, uh, or I don't think that's logical right now, um, or will be accepted. So I'm, I'm pretty out on this, to be honest. And, uh, I I agree. I'm not a huge fan of this one either. I'll, I'll say this, like summer league is an interesting test case for this, because as you know, some teams get pretty excited about summer league. Like they go out there to win that tournament. Right. And some teams do not care whatsoever. <laughs> and it's not like they're tanking to lose, but if they get to go home early, that's a win in their eyes, right? Let's like, let's look at our prospect, play two games. If he looks like he has, you know, functioning limbs and he doesn't get injured, like we're calling it a success and we're out. And I don't think it would be that dramatic because these games would theoretically count in the regular season, right? Um, but I think there's a situation where you definitely have lots of different motives uh, in terms of you know how seriously our team's going to take this. And you have real questions about how seriously they should take it, right? I mean, I think if you're a smart veteran team, and of course your highest priority is being healthy going into the playoffs, killing yourself for random tournament games in November sounds like a really stupid strategy. And I think most of the smartest organizations would just sort of punt this tournament. Now, you know, I do understand this idea of like, well, it's easier to sell a tournament to sponsors and maybe there is a way to make more money off this. Um, I just don't know. You know, it, it just feels like you're putting lipstick on the pig. I think if I was an owner, I would want to see very compelling evidence that this was going to be like a big hit with corporate sponsors, or maybe there's a tie-in so you can do some of these games, playing them overseas, so you can kind of you know spread the game in other ways. If it's just like, hey, guess what? This random Tuesday night game between the Hornets and Bulls is now a tournament game. I don't think that's going to stick. I don't think fans are going to care. And, and I kind of show your concerns. So at this point, I would vote no on this proposal until we get a more compelling argument for the league about why it's necessary and what the financial benefits of the tournament uh, would be. I'm, I'm totally out. And I have a quick question. What exactly is the incentive? Like, what is the, the, the prize? Is it strictly just cash for the players? Well, you know, an Open Floor Glow member named Victor Solomon has made it a passion project to design high-end uh, pl- uh, luxury uh, stained glass backboards. But he's told me his real goal is to redesign the NBA's trophies. He basically, I think, wants to kill Larry O'Brien. I think that's his goal. But I think ultimately, if they're going to come up with a cup or a plaque, Uh, I've always kind of liked the plates that the tennis uh, stars can win from their tournaments. You know, you just get this giant gold or silver plate. Like, you know, it's actually kind of functional. Obviously, you don't want to put it through the dishwasher. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like there's some like, you know, you can imagine, you know, I don't know, R.C. Buford uh, or Kevin Pritchard, you know, with his with his, uh, you know, silver plate at home, just kind of like showing it off to, uh, you know, dinner party guests or something. But yeah. I don't know. I think we should have Victor Solomon design this thing. I think he would be able to come up with an awesome trophy or uh, some sort of a totem of accomplishment. Uh, You could name it. Maybe you're naming it after David Stern. Feels like kind of the natural, uh, you know, if you're having an in-season tournament strictly designed to increase revenue, that sounds like a David Stern trophy. That sounds perfect, you know? Just Uh, just even envisioning Kevin Pritchard holding up a giant dinner plate, I'm already embarrassed for him. I'm embarrassed for the (laughs) league. I I don't think that that's a good idea. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm workshopping this, all right? We're trying to help the NBA along here. Great point. I think we're both out on this tournament, and we can move on to the third proposal. The third proposal is playing games. The idea is in each conference, the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th seeds would basically 
square off uh, in games uh, for the right to make the playoffs. In the, the first game, the seventh seed would play the eighth seed. The winner gets in. Um, in the next game, the ninth seed would play the tenth seed. The loser is out. The third game, uh, the loser of the game between seven and eight would play the winner of the game nine versus ten, and they would claim the final playoff spot. Uh, so what this proposal accomplishes is it encourages teams who are on the bubble or potentially close not to tank down the stretch because they still have an incentive to make the playoffs. It adds a little bit of spice before the postseason to get people invested and, uh, you know, like kind of as a lead in or an appetizer to use another <laughs> cooking uh, phrase, uh, which seems <laughs> to be the running theme here where we've got plates and, uh, and everything else. But, uh, as an appetizer for the real playoffs. And then it would also put into a situation where like some people were concerned, well, we don't want to have these playing games overshadow what people did during the regular season. Cause that's six months of a body of work. You don't want to squander that on, you know, one or two games before the playoffs. And what they've done is kind of built in a protection. So if you are the seventh or eighth seed, you basically have to lose twice before you give up um, your postseason spot. Uh, I think that the main goal from the league's uh, you know standpoint is to make the you know the stretch run matter as much as possible, so there aren't as many empty games in March and April, and it's also to you know keep you know those bubble teams uh, you know potentially invested and really to curb tanking. I think a classic example here would be the Lakers from last season, where if this proposal had been in place. The Lakers don't shut down LeBron James in late March, and, and he doesn't sit for all of April, right? Like, there's still a situation where they're playing hard so that they, they can get to the play-in game so LeBron can potentially you know, work them into the playoffs, and then they can try to be a, a spoiler in the first round, right? Um, as it was, they sat him, and you know, basically like 10 games wind up being completely meaningless. And again, that's a, you know, a real hit uh, to the league if— you know, the, the, the premier player is just not out there playing for a long stretch, uh, you know, of the season. So you can see the reasoning from the league's perspective. Um, what do you think, Michael? I know it's a little bit of a complicated idea, but are you thumbs up or thumbs down? This is a tough one. I'm a <laughs> real tough, a lot of stakes. Um, I am thumbs up just because I would personally be invested in watching these play-in games. Uh, I think late March, uh, early April, NBA basketball is the worst NBA basketball. You have just, it's aesthetically and stylistically, and the energy is just at its absolute worst and lowest. Uh, so if it improves that, that, those games, or at least some of them, uh, I'm all for it. And then the actual play-in games would be a thrill. I mean, I, I remember the... Uh, Wolves-Nuggets game from a couple years back that went down to the wire to decide which team got the eighth seed in the Western Conference uh, in Jimmy Butler's first season with uh, the Timberwolves. That was an awesome game. If we have more of those, then sure, like I'm all for it. I, I'm a little skeptical that this will discourage tanking because at the end of the day, uh, especially with you know how they've uh, recently reformed the lottery odds to increase the percentage of a team uh, you know, finishing not with the absolute worst record in the league, but just a, a, a basic lottery team, uh, increasing their chance of getting the number one pick. I think that the incentive of, of landing someone like Zion Williamson will always outweigh, uh, you know, getting to the playoffs and getting smacked in the first round. 
Yeah, I think you the the playing game that you referenced uh, is the ideal version, right? I mean, the NBA would really get a lot of juice if these playoff games were played at that level with that intensity for the one from a couple of years ago, the Minnesota game that you mentioned. Uh, my concern is there's already only like three or four teams that deserve to be in the playoffs from the Eastern Conference. So if we're now effectively <laughs> opening up the Eastern Conference playoffs to 10 teams, you realize the playoff game would be between the Washington Wizards at number nine and the Charlotte Hornets at number 10 right now. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to get buzz basketball. from that game. Right, right. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if the idea in theory is actually going to be better than the idea in practice. And by the way, both those teams have uh, won fewer than 40% of their games this year, right? So there's a real compelling counter-argument, which would be like, no matter what your playoffs look like, teams like that should not be in it. And if they are, your playoff is screwed up, right? So like, you have to fix the whole thing if you're letting in teams like that. Um, I hear those voices, for sure. I think my stance on this one is... No, but a softer no. If it was part of this widespread uh, reform, right, where Adam mm-hmm. Silver is basically just saying, look, we're doing A, B, and C. This is how it's going to be. You're going to like it. It will make things better as a whole. I can get behind it. If it winds up being like the only thing, like if this gets negotiated out between the owners, the players union, and uh, Adam Silver, and like everything else kind of falls by the wayside, and for whatever reason, this is the one that they stick with. I don't think it's worth it. It's just kind of like, all right, like you should have just won your games during the regular season. Why are we letting you in the back door with pity? You know what I mean? So that's kind of how I stand on it. I'm a yes if it's part of a comprehensive plan. I'm a no if it's a standalone idea. What do you think? What's your final vote? That's a very complicated caveat, I got to say. But (laughs) I... I, I mean, if I'm ranking which one of these I want to go through, it's reseeding the conference finals number one easily for me. Like, I, I'm with you that this particular change is not super important, but I'm, I'm ultimately voting yes just because of the upside of getting a game like that Nuggets-Wolves game I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, the, the, the point you made about the Eastern Conference and letting in a team like the Charlotte Hornets uh, would be... Uh, not great, but you also have the opportunity where, you know, a Miles Bridges or a PJ Washington could get playoff experience and maybe catch fire for a couple games and be a legend for 15 minutes. Like, I think that that's, there's value in that too, maybe a little bit, probably no, not. De- no, there definitely is. I mean, like a team like the Sacramento Kings last year where they, fu- they come up just short, right? And you're trying to build something, you're trying to build a culture. Lots of coaches will say, Playoff reps are important. We want our guys to, you know, get a taste of that, even if they're not ready for it. Like, at least know what you're playing for. And if you're a franchise that's been on the outside looking in for years, like the Kings, and they're the ninth seed last year, they would love the opportunity to try to play spoiler and to try to get reps in that type of high-pressure environment. So I I do think there's value there. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, I understand from their perspective, right? Uh, but I guess I'm I'm trying to look at this more holistically from like the league's perspective is like how much should we really care that PJ Washington and you know De'Aaron Fox get to have one game of playoff <laughs> reps? Uh, it's not the highest priority for me uh, as an imaginary owner. That's all I'm saying. It also kind of devalues the postseason as like an objective. Do you know like do you, and like as an experience? You know what I mean? Like if every team 
can make it except for like the absolute crappiest of the crappy, then I don't yeah, like the first round. Who's watching the first round of the playoffs then? Like the, are the ratings impacted then? No, it's a good question. And like something that gets brought up a lot, like I'm sure you write this a lot, like, oh, you know, the Warriors have made the playoffs for X straight years, or this team has been a lottery team for seven straight years. Like those kinds of qualifiers, which do signify something, uh, at, you know, if you add the play in things, it's almost meaningless, right? Or you have to say they made the real playoffs five straight years, right? And then they were right. in the play the play-in game twice. It gets a little bit more complicated. That's why I don't love it. Um, all right. I think that we've uh, talked through those things uh, sufficiently, um, and we'll see what the NBA comes up with. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there should be a decision here or at least an announcement uh, by April, which, uh, you know, after we've been tracking this kind of a story for years and years, for someone like me, even though it's still a few years off in the future when it would be implemented, that's still a pretty exciting uh, milepost and we'll see what they're able to come up with. All right, before we move on to some incredible questions and emails from the Open Floor Globe, who really came through big uh, this week, we've got a quick message from Keeps. Now, two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35 years old. The good news, with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair that you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. You don't have to go broke to avoid going bald. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products that are out there. Some of you have may, may have tried them before, but you probably have never seen them at this price. Plus, Keeps now offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy too. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments really work. They are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps' treatments. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. Thanks to Keeps, you no longer have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now you can visit a doctor online and get your hair loss medication delivered to your home. No more waiting rooms and no more pharmacy checkout lines. Get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. That's a pretty powerful package. We're talking about lower price, more privacy, and getting ahead of negative trends when it comes to your hairline. Keeps has it all covered. All right. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash floor to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash floor. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash floor. All right, let's dig into some questions. And Michael, this week we got multiple questions on the topic of cheating. Mark wants to know, this offseason, Major League Baseball has been experiencing a massive cheating scandal involving the Houston Astros. They were using a camera in the outfield to stream live video of the catcher's signals to the pitcher so they knew what type of pitch was coming. They communicated this to the hitters by banging on a trash can in a hallway behind their dugout. The Astros have a history of morally wrong behavior and an attitude of winning at all costs, so nobody was really that surprised. Which NBA team would you be least surprised to learn was cheating? How would you even cheat in basketball? I'm thinking maybe you could get live audio of the other team's huddles. So, Michael, uh, 
clearly Mark has stumbled upon it in a fascinating topic, but he's also trying to goad us into uh, you know slandering NBA teams here, uh, kind of without a doubt. But what do you think? Is there a team out there you think is more prone to cheating? And if you were going to cheat, like as a GM or even a player, how would you do it? First of all, I just want to say that the Houston Astros banging trash cans, I did not know that was a thing before I read that question. And uh, what a time to be alive that a professional sports team is doing something like that. Uh, Just incredible. Um, Yeah, no, shame is not really in in the 21st century. It's not really a thing. Uh, It's become really out, out of fashion um, I understand like real baggy jeans, a boot cut jeans. You know, the millennials tell me those aren't cool anymore. Shame is right there with the boot cut jeans. <laughs> um, okay, so to answer your question, you're right. I don't want to slander any teams, but I feel like this team that I'm about to say would totally understand because of various things that they've been associated with in the past, not that they've ever done anything wrong per se, but the Houston Rockets like to push the envelope, let's say, whether it be the construction of the Nene contract this past summer, where I don't want to get too deep into the particulars, but basically it was they thought that they could uh, sign an A and then use that contract money as a trade ship, which kind of circumvented the the spirit of the CBA rule. And I'm, I'm probably even getting it, it wrong and just as broadly as I've described it, but the, the NBA did not allow them to do what they wanted to do ultimately. Uh, if you go from that to, you know, how they uh, constructed the uh, offer sheets for Omer Ashik way back in the day and, and Jeremy Lin where there was kind of like a, a poison pill situation. I, the details are, are, the exact details are escaping me, but they were doing things that were inventive and basically taking advantage of loopholes. Uh, so you add that to just the growing animosity from some circles of NBA fandom about how James Harden plays basketball uh, and how he uh, takes advantage, I would say, of the gather and the step and just whether or not he's traveling every single time he drives to the basket and and, and on the step backs and all that. So I would say that the, the Rockets are probably the team and the organization I would associate most with this. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I think that they're kind of like public enemy number one right now in the NBA at large. I have very mixed feelings about this because, you know, Michael, I consider myself a gamer, right? Like I can empathize with a guy like Chris Paul, who's just looking for every little edge in life. And I understand how annoying (laughs) and aggravating that is for people around me on a regular basis. Uh, (laughs) I'm a very competitive person. Uh, but I also like, if I'm playing Scrabble, I'm not going to cheat. You know, you can't look at your opponent's tiles. You know, you can't, uh, you know, pretend to take out 10 tiles from the bag and then just pick the seven best ones and kind of let the other three slide through your fingers as you let them back. You know, there, there's definitely ethical lines, but on some of the things that you're describing, I actually have a lot of respect for how their front offices has pushed the envelope on the loopholes, right? Like, I think that that's sort of what you're getting paid to do is come up with every possible way to put your your team in the best position to win. And if you're doing stuff that no one else has done before, in a lot of cases, I almost look at that as a badge of honor, right? Like if there's it winds up becoming a Daryl Morey rule, right? For uh, how one contract could be, uh, you know, structured versus another, like I think he should 
basically frame that on his wall like an inventor would frame a patent. You know what I mean? It's like, congratulations, you've moved into new intellectual territory. So that stuff doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some fans. And also, I think the Harden three-point foul thing, uh, it's a great example of this. Um, it's such an its a, such an obvious basketball loophole. And John Hollinger had a really nice breakdown of this on The Athletic last week about just the, the, the value created every time you're fouled while shooting a three-pointer. It's like the single best thing that can happen to you besides making a three-pointer, uh, you know, in terms of the expected value of that possession. And so for him to come up with all these sidestep maneuvers, yes, the leg kick, um, yes, the step back, uh, you know, and just how his quick release three-pointer sometimes, how he just kind of like lunges into shots. I mean, he's basically created an entire inventory of moves around the notion that, hey, I need to be able to get fouled while I'm shooting three-pointers because that's a really valuable thing to have happen. Um I respect Harden for doing that. I know some people think it's cheap. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the other stuff that he does is a little bit cheaper than that. But if that's what the rule is, you know, you should be kind of you know doing things that are going to, uh, you know, put your team in position to do it, I, uh, you know, to, to benefit uh, from those particular rules. And I know there's a lot of people out there who feel differently. A lot of smart people like Mike Trudell, uh, you know, the Lakers sideline reporter. I mean, I think that some of this stuff really bothers him because, you know, you go back to how you played basketball when you were a kid or when you were in high school. And, you know, the guy who's, you know, falling all over the court, flopping, you know, leaning in to create contact, trying to hook, uh, you know, another person's arm, you know, potentially setting people up for injury. Like that stuff feels dirty. That stuff feels like not part of the game. And again, Harden is riding that line very, very closely uh, on a regular basis. And I understand why that's aggravating for for people. Um, but in the case specifically of hunting fouls on the three-point shot, as long as that's the rule, uh, you know, it doesn't bother me on him. Now, in terms of how I would cheat, um, well, I guess, uh, I, I, you know, I, it was going through my mind, like this idea of deflate gate, right? And it's like the, the, the actual elements of the, of the sport, can any of those be manipulated in the NBA? And like the basketball, you know, it gets, you know, felt by both teams, the referees. So if you were a shooter who wanted to like, you know, deflate the basketball so it has a better chance of going in the hoop, you know, softer landing on the rims and so forth, that's very hard to actually execute on a regular basis, right? Because there's like checks and balances there. So that one's tough. But I did, I've always wondered because like the Staples Center gets turned over from a hockey rink to a basketball court regularly. I've always wondered if you had a rogue actor who was in charge of the rims and he just made the rims, I don't know, an inch wider, an inch and a half wider. Or if you were a defensive team, you made the, the rims an inch and a half more narrow, uh, and they set up the rest of the thing perfectly, would you be able to slide that through? Is there any chance that people wouldn't be able to notice? Because every once in a while with the rims, there's like a complaint, oh, it's not hanging you know, perfectly level, and so they have to like swap out the whole backboard. I mean, this happened recently and delayed a game. So I'm wondering, is that not a possible way to cheat? Or if you were a coach, would you be inclined to like mess with the actual rim itself to try to give your team an advantage? This is, I mean, while you were talking, I was just thinking about the, the Red Auerbach era Celtics and how they would eliminate hot water in the showers and how there were dead <laughs> spots on the court. Well, hey, I, I'm getting to that because that's another plan I've got, but continue. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't think that any of that is technically cheating. It's just extremely bush league and unprofessional. But we don't really. That's not like the first thing people associate when you think about Bill Russell and Matt Auerbach. You think about uh, all the championships they won and how they dominated their era. Uh, you don't think about the dead spots that was <laughs> that were on Boston, the Boston Garden court, and, and that the the Celtics were very familiar with, but opponents weren't. Uh, so yeah, that <laughs> that type of stuff. I mean, widening the rim would probably be a little too uh, too dramatic and over the line. But the, one of the things that I came no, up it with would be was, completely cheating. It would be completely yeah, yeah. You're, you're, I'm you're, just you're, you're I'm right. just wondering, could you get away with it, right? Like, and I don't know exactly the inspection process that they go through. You might have to just like deploy it, uh, you know occasionally i don't think you could probably just like put out these giant hula hoop rims every night without anybody (laughs) realizing but i do think if it was like a matter of an inch it might actually impact field goal percentages and maybe it would escape detection but like i wouldn't be able to tell from the naked eye i wouldn't even think to look right also what this is what like what is the upside if you are caught versus like what you're getting away with with this absolute minuscule change of the like if you if it was detected that you actually did it and you were caught like you'd be shamed forever and so i don't i don't think it's so you're saying necessarily the, the risk it. outweighs the reward that's on exactly this one. exactly well, what that's, i'm saying that's what people said about tom brady and the footballs too man and look where that got them uh, we, no, yeah, I, we, we don't need to get into that but <laughs> I, I had i had two i had two uh quick things that i just want to talk about on this subject one is a little less I, I don't know if this is this is definitely not al- along the lines of, of of recircumventing the the rims and the structure of the court or anything like that. But I noticed I saw one play with Pat Beverly uh, during the 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 Clippers Celtics game from last week that we talked about, and Pat Beverly pretended during a Kemba Walker free throw, he pretended to fall forward before. Uh, before Kemba Walker actually released the basketball on the free throw and didn't technically step over the line, but he was obviously distracting. And Kemba missed the free throw and then started to complain to the ref that Pat Beverly stepped over the line, even though his upper body was leaning forward, but he technically didn't move his feet over the line, so it was not a lane violation. That's not cheating, but it is, <laughs> it is, it's something else, and I don't really know exactly what the word is. So, like faking a seizure on a free throw line is your method for cheating like just regularly <laughs> being the seizure guy okay i let i can kind of get where you're going with that bark um, like a so, dog yep so going back to the the thing about the boston garden we saw it during the nba finals remember when the ac went out in san antonio and lebron's reaction in the game was like they're trying to smoke us out so he really either felt like it was intentional in terms of raising the temperature in the building, or he was trying to use it as like a rallying cry to like, hey, you know, we're in adverse situations. We've got to band together. Everybody's against us, even the guy who runs the AC unit, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is a kind of a flip version of that. Now, you could go the, the San Antonio Spurs way, which is basically like set your... Uh, you know, set your oven to like 325 degrees and just always practicing it. So you're more prepared for it. And then, you know, during crucial games, you crank up the heat. The other team's not ready. You have more endurance. It's sort of like the Denver Nuggets advantage at altitude, but you're using it with temperature, but you could also go the other way, Michael. Now you remember, I described my ideal uniform where I was going to wear like full, 
you know, sleeves and, you know, leg warmers and socks and just basically cover every inch of my body. Mm-hmm. What if you just basically made your stadium into the ice bowl? You cranked the temperature down to like 60 degrees, but all your players knew you were going to do it. So they all showed up in my uniform with every inch of their skin covered. So they were more prepared for the elements. The other team, not knowing this was coming, would then just be shivering throughout the course of a game. Do you think that that would be a successful cheating strategy? I think the jig would be up immediately. And I also <laughs> think that the fans would uh, would not be pleased. If fans were not notified beforehand and they show up with their jackets, but they take them off, they got t-shirts Look, on. You just, you just do it on like free ear warmer night. You know, like you have sure. like a, a tie-in, <laughs> a tie-in for the holidays. Keep the fans toasty as well. But ultimately, the fans want to see a win, right? We're trying to do everything we can to win. Yeah, I, I think if you did that, then the con- congressional hearings where they were investigating this, would, <laughs> the, the evidence there would just be overwhelming. And I think you would be found guilty immediately. All right. Well, it is tricky to come up with cheating strategies just because there's only so mer- many variables at play, right? Like you can't change the court. It's like I mentioned, it's hard to change the ball. I think the rim thing would actually get detected fairly quickly. And like you're saying, you would be blackballed from the sport if you did that. Um, And, you know, the other thing would be the conditions of the arena. And and one big variable, obviously, is altitude. But temperature would be another one. Um, Past that, I think it is fairly difficult to cheat uh, with the with the specific terms of the game. Now, if you want to go within the game and come up with, uh, you know, shady behavior as some NBA players have, um, and like you described, that's a a different uh, aspect. But I also think it's like a a less crucial aspect in a way, right? Like, is Patrick Beverly going to be able to cheat his way to a title by having conniptions on the free throw line? That seems unlikely. We might find out this year, man. But also, I I, I feel like you could, I don't know if you could, but filming a shoot around is that like that would be I'm pretty positive that that is not allowed if you had a spy go into the arena in the morning before a game and film I mean film these walkthroughs I don't really know how much information you're actually going to get that could give you a competitive advantage uh but that could be one other avenue of cheating that I came up with but no, that's a great point because like advanced scouts uh, at these NBA games they'll be watching like their whole job is to just watch the signals that the coach you know watch what plays the teams run but then also right. watch the signals from the coach to the players and then basically you know that way they can present to their own coaching staff hey when Doc Rivers puts up four fingers that's what this play means uh you know if Chris Paul waves his hand in a floppy manner, guess what? That means the floppy play is coming. Um, so they they already kind of do some of this counter surveillance, uh, you know, out in the open. But yeah, like if you knew which gyms in your city, like in LA, there's a couple high schools where teams will go. Sometimes they go to UCLA. Like if you could contact the UCLA athletic department and be like, look, we're installing like 25 cameras in your building and we're going to review all of the footage afterwards. And you just have to, you know, like just charge us a fee for this and we'll do here's it. here's $50 <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, these teams make a lot of money I mean you could definitely make it worth uh, you know some of these uh, people's while uh, that's not a bad idea and I wonder if it actually already happens you think it does probably I don't see why yeah. not yeah and this is what the Saints got in trouble for in the NFL right well or, and uh, the Patriots the, the Patriots got in trouble for doing it to the Saints I think maybe 
uh, to the Rams. Well, let we can't. I don't want this to turn into a, a me outing myself as a Patriots fan podcast because that's just gonna <laughs> the subscription numbers are just gonna plummet. So we should probably just move on. All right, understood. We've got another question on the the cheating matter from Ali. He writes in from Yokohama, Japan. And he says, and this is kind of going back philosophically to what I was saying earlier. You often hear people say, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. But I couldn't disagree more. There's nothing that annoys me more in uh, today's NBA game than players cheating their way for an edge. Whether it's flopping or kicking your legs out on a jumper to get a foul call, rip through moves, or the bane of my existence, pushing off your defender with your free arm to create space. Shouldn't there be something to play in the game with honor that supersedes trying to win by cheating? What can we do to make players embrace a more honorable style of play? Ali, I love you riding in here at full gallop on the high horse. I think, though, <laughs> we do need to say pushing off with your off arm is not cheating, right? No. That's just a foul, and the referees need to call that as a foul. Now, flopping, to me, it's more of a gray area. I'm in favor of strict enforcement of the flopping guidelines. I liked when they came up with it. I thought the public shaming aspect of it was actually really delightful and fun. Um, And they just went away from it, de-emphasized it. Bring it back. Flopping is back in 2020, okay? Flopping fines are back in 2020. Let's do it. Um, The kicking out the legs thing definitely bothers me because of uh, the potential for injury, right? It doesn't bother me so much on the honor side. It it just scares me when you've got limbs going like that. Someone's going to wind up getting hurt. And it's, you know, so unnecessary. I don't necessarily view that as cheating. I view that as more dangerous. And I love when uh, referees step up and call that as an offensive foul because I think that's the right play. Um, do you have any other answers from uh, for Ali, though, uh, on this subject? Is there anything else that can be done to clean up the sport? No, I think that, you, I mean, you talked about bringing back the the fines and public announcements. Pat Beverly was just cited uh, as someone who... Uh, uh, violated the the flapping rules recently, which was something that uh, hadn't been done in quite a while, even though we see flopping in every single game and every other possession. So I would up the the punishment in terms of uh, either a cash uh, violation or uh, maybe make it so... A certain number of flops equals a suspension or one flop equals two personal fouls to be doled out either in game or in the following contest. Uh, That's how I I, I mean, you just have to try to curb this stuff with higher punishment is is how I, I, I think you can solve the problem. But besides that, I don't know what you could do. Yeah, I think that it proved to work. Uh, I think flopping went down there for a couple years, you know, um, or at least some of the most egregious ones. And I think that, uh, you know, the players feeling like it became a backburner thing for the league are now kind of, you know, back up to their old tricks a little bit. And, uh, you know, the NBA has found a solution. They just need to put it into place. Um, you know, Ali, I think the other thing that we can do, both as fans and as, as media members, is celebrate the players who do it the right way um, and who, who don't cheat, uh, who don't uh, bend the rules and hold them up as the standards of sort of, uh, you know, how the game, you know, should be played. And if we give more attention that way, I think that, uh, you know, just naturally, 
there will be some kind of shame following to the players who are maybe guilty of some of this conduct that uh, that aggravates you so much. But I think it has to be kind of a, a carrot and a, a stick approach, right? If we're just screaming all day long about uh, you know, Harden's cheap, da, da 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 da. I think that just you know forces those players kind of into like a shell where they double down and they just tune out all of the conversation. And I think that if we wind up rewarding the players for who aren't guilty of the same behavior, who play this cleaner style, and you know talk them up more and kind of you know give them you know uh, credit and uh, you know public acknowledgement. Uh, it creates a healthier dynamic for everyone to appreciate the sport. It puts the sport in a better light. And hopefully, uh, maybe at some point, it encourages you know some of the, uh, the dark actors to maybe to move towards the light. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right. We had another situation involving James Harden over the weekend. On Friday night, he uh, and really throughout this current three-game losing streak for the Houston Rockets, he's been facing regular double teams uh, at the top of the key. Uh, and it, it really kind of came to fruition in a game against the Clippers where he was being guarded by Kawhi Leonard on the final play of the game. Paul George jumps him with a double team, which forces James Harden to pass the ball to Russell Westbrook. Uh, Westbrook bricks a three-pointer, uh, you know, winds up being the game-deciding possession. The Clippers win the game. Patrick Beverly is on the bench making fun of Westbrook's shooting style, uh, you know, after the miss. And Harden, after the game, comes out and says, the whole season they're running double teams at me. I've never seen that in an NBA game where you've got really good defenders and someone else running at the top of the key. Y'all let me know the last time you've seen that. That's what he told media members. Now, immediately, when I tweeted the video of that comment, like thousands or at least hundreds of Warriors fans started screaming about, oh, Steph Curry's been seeing every defense. He's seen double teams, triple teams, boxing one, everything else like that. And uh, it kind of created this whole conversation around, well, why is Harden whining about his double teams? Uh, he's, you know, he has the ball all the time. What does he expect? He's a really good scorer. He's averaging more points than anybody since Will Chamberlain. Of course, there's going to be a lot of attention. Um, but it, it kind of reinvigorated or reenacted uh, this civil war between, uh, you know, Warriors fans and Rockets fans. So, Michael, I'm just curious, uh, you know, that was a pretty kind of heated moment, I guess, and a, kind of a telling moment, I think, for the Rockets offense as well uh, in terms of their spacing issues at times. What did you take away from, uh, you know, that entire subplot? First, I, I, I wrote about this today on SB Nation. First, I want to address the uh, the Steph Curry comparisons uh, yes, Steph Curry has been double teamed. Every great offensive player gets double teamed. I think 
what Harden was referring to is the fact that he crosses half court, and this was happening throughout the final three or four minutes of that entire game on just about every possession. So it wasn't just that last play. But he crosses half court, and his primary defender is Kawhi Leonard, who we can all agree is one of the best perimeter defenders in NBA history. So that's the situation that you would expect the Los Angeles Clippers to be happy with at the start. This is the matchup that they want. What you don't usually see ever is them then running a second defender who happens to be an all-defensive, also a great perimeter uh, weapon, off-ball, just a paralyzing force in Paul George, run him at Harden. So you basically take your two best defensive players just to squeeze the ball out of Harden's hands. He hits Westbrook, and in that last play, Westbrook made probably a poor decision in pulling up for that three with six seconds to go and bricking it. But in previous possessions uh, in that game, earlier ones, you know, he drove the wide open lane in front of him and he found Clint Capella for a layup. Uh, you know, there are wide open three point shooters when he attacks the basket. He finished uh, a couple layups in those situations. So I think it's just really abnormal and strange and desperate for defenses to guard Harden like this. And it really speaks to how effective he's been this season and how amazing he's been and how out of answers. Uh, opposing coaches feel that they are. And this isn't to take away from to, from Steph or from any other great offensive player who has faced double teams, but when Steph Curry crossed half court and Kawhi Leonard was on the Spurs and Kawhi Leonard picked him up, they didn't run uh, Danny Green at him or something like that just to squeeze the ball and pass it. So putting themselves in a situation where, you know, Clay Thompson would get a wide open three. That's just not how it really works. That's not, it's, it's just, I think that this defense is particularly strange. I think Harden has a point and I don't think that it's particularly smart long-term. So I agree with a lot of what you said. And the clarification I think that needs to be made between Harden and Steph is that, you know, just by the nature of Golden State's office, mm-hmm. Steph isn't coming across the court in the middle of the court and pounding an isolation or wanting right. to pound an isolation very often, right? A lot of the times he's facing extra attention. It's because he's like working hard off the ball or they jump him once he gets a pass uh, or, you know, they're they're showing him, uh, you know, a double team or a trap when he's on the side of the court, which is a much more natural philosophy defensively. As you're describing, this is a very desperate strategy. You know, it's desperate times uh, demand desperate measures, right, defensively. And when you're sending two defenders at a a star, especially a star who can pass the ball in the middle of the court, usually that's like suicide, right? Because it's an easy, you know, easy pass to the open guy, lots of space, and then you're playing, uh, you know, with the man advantage behind those top two defenders. They're not going to have enough time to get back. So that's the main reason why you don't see it very often is because it's you know, usually, you know, pretty easy to beat. Now, the problem is you know, Harden's been so good and Westbrook potentially because of his uh, lack of shooting restraint and his, you know, poor shooting ability, it kind of changes the calculus, right? Like I think if you're the Clippers or the Nuggets or uh, the Mavericks who are also all doubling Harden here over these last couple of games, like if you have your choice between, uh, you know, picking your poison between Harden and getting to do what he does at the top of the key, dancing and setting up step back threes or, or driving lanes versus just letting Westbrook do whatever Westbrook wants to do and shoot 40% and shoot 23% on three pointers. It's, you're not even picking your poison. You're picking between like Pellegrino 
which would be the you know fantastic sparkling water. <laughs> That'd be the option of letting Westbrook do whatever he wants versus legit poison, which is Harden. So <laughs> I, it's a situation that it wouldn't be a possible defensive strategy if Eric Gordon is healthy and if Chris Paul is still in Houston because those guys not only can shoot the three-pointers if they're left open, uh, but they're also capable of driving to the basket like you're describing <clears throat> and kind of breaking the defensive down that way. I think that once Gordon's back healthy, we'll probably see less of this. Uh, but I do think that when you're going forward, kind of big picture and looking at Houston's fate, and once they're going to get into the playoffs, opposing teams are going to dare Westbrook to beat them no matter what. They are going to try to take away Harden no matter what, and they're going to put it all on Westbrook's shoulders. Houston has to be ready to not live or die with Westbrook shooting the basketball because they will die. Oklahoma City died year after year. Houston will die this year if they live or die by Westbrook's three-pointers. So I think that that's going to be the adjustments they're going to want to have ready in their back pocket uh, to this defensive strategy or to any other strategy that involves basically like, you know, teams abandoning Westbrook, cheating off of him um, and, and just basically kind of saying, hey, man, you know, do whatever you want to do. Like Houston must be ready for that. And it seems like they're working through that process right now on the fly. I think it's completely fair for that to take months for them to kind of get together their game plan for how they want to handle it. Uh, but they, that needs to be front of mind for them because, uh, you know, it looks weird. I understand why Harden's annoyed by it, but I think Harden also just kind of has to admit he made his bed here. Like now he has to lay in it. He traded out a good shooter in Chris Paul for a poor shooter in Russell Westbrook. And now he's facing more double teams, even though they're weird double teams. What did he expect? No, yeah. You, I mean, you make a good point there. And I think that it, it is, there is a lot of responsibility on Russell Westbrook to make the right decision. And I think it's, it's strange to say this, but I feel like he's become an underrated playmaker. And in scenarios where he catches the ball at the free throw line or, or uh, you know, elbow extended and he has a four on three situation and an open path to the rim in front of him, I think more or more times than not, good things will happen for the Rockets. And I think the Rockets believe that. And I mean, there was one play where uh, earlier in that game where Westbrook caught the ball at the elbow. He had a four on three. He attacked, drew Montrez Harrell, kicked it to or, or dumped it to uh, Clint Capella. And Clint Capella just couldn't handle the pass. And Jermichael Green recovered uh, and blocked the shot. And it went the other way. And, and I, I think Paul George hit a corner three. So, you know, uh, plays like that are, are, are sequences that the Rockets will execute better going forward. You made a really good point about Eric Gordon not being healthy right now. And he spaces the floor as well as anybody, even though he was shooting the ball really poorly to start the season. Uh, he has gravity. Uh, and there's always the option where, you know, if this is nightmarish going forward and, and and Russell Westbrook's ego gets the best of him and he's just jacking up open threes because teams are daring him to do it and he wants to prove he can, you still have the opportunity to to bench him and to play lineups in the playoffs that have, you know, Ben McLemore has played really well as a spot shooter uh, and a sound defender. Austin Rivers has become a reliable role player for this team. P.J. Tucker is one of the better corner three-point shooters in basketball. I think that there is a window there for that option, but that's kind of the nuclear option, and you do not even try it until your back is absolutely against the wall. Yeah, and I think that 
you try to hide Westbrook too if you can, right? It's like almost mm-hmm. like give him a little bit of Simmons treatment, right? Treat him almost like a big on offense, uh, maybe at times. Uh, if you go to some of those smaller looks where you have a player like PJ Tucker who can defend the bigs, but he can still shoot the three pointers. So you maybe like, you know, move Westbrook into a situation where it's almost like he's a, a big and, you know, he's trying to be energetic around the paint rather than, you know, standing outside the arc. I mean, I don't know. They're going to have to get creative in how they handle it. And I, I do think once they're fully healthy, if they have guys like Eric Gordon, Gerald Green, I think it will be a less pronounced situation uh, for Harden to deal with, and Westbrook's effect in terms of you know missing from outside will be uh, you know less catastrophic. Um, but this is what Houston has to work through. And look, they're still in a good position. I think they're on pace to win like 53 games right now. They've got a top three offense. Uh, the defense has picked up here over the last month. So this is not a crisis, but this is just something that you do have to keep an eye on. You know, looking forward to you know playoff matchups and how teams will defend Harden in the playoffs. All right, we've got an incredibly well thought out email here from Chris. It doesn't even need a run up. I'm just going to read it. Now, be aware, listeners, it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. He writes, the Sacramento Kings are a microcosm of America and Vlade Divac is Donald Trump. Vlade is a charismatic man with no experience at all, and he was suddenly put into the most powerful position in the organization by a well-financed fringe element whose ideas were otherwise too extreme to gain traction elsewhere. Immediately, there were concerns about his fitness for office. Still, there were some Kings fans who thought that he may grow into it and that we should give him a chance. In the beginning, there were stops and starts, a revolving door of cabinet members and coaches, Signs of hope followed by unimaginable stupidity. As time goes on, his mind-boggling decisions start to accumulate, but his early supporters are in too deep to turn back. Instead of an honest assessment of his performance, his defenders focus on civility and respect for the office. Imagine being an 18-year-old kid and having the internet furious that a team drafted you. We have to support the players. Vlade is the general manager. We have to assume he knows that he has a plan. Then, a bombshell out of Eastern Europe. Despite vocal opposition, Vlade passes on Slovenian superstar Luka Doncic in favor of Marvin Bagley III. Has Vlade finally crossed the line? Luka's first season is the closed-door investigation. Each game is a daily dispatch that offers glimpses of what's to come. Now, two months into Luka Doncic's second season, and there is no question that Vlade is guilty. Not only has he done irreparable damage to the organization, but he sold us out to serve his own ego. He thought he could outsmart the basketball gods. Now that the proof is out in the open, we Kings fans have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Can we forgive his supporters and enablers? Can we be optimistic about the future while lamenting how close we came to finally becoming the city upon a hill? Or do we just accept that we are... As Kendrick Perkins once said to rally the Thunder on to victory, still the Sacramento Kings. Man, that's an absolute heater email from Chris. And it sounds like he's preparing for war. Like it sounds like he's (laughs) ready to attack the pro Vlade fan contingent there in Sacramento or what remains of it. And I guess I'm curious, like, you know, take his question about forgiveness. Is Is it irreparable? I mean... If you're on Team Vlade at this point, do you just have to take the loss? And that includes, by the way, ownership. Do they just need to take the loss here? Um, this decision does feel like it hangs over their organization, doesn't it? I didn't know that Vlade had a base of supporters. It, this is this is news to me. 
Like I, 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 I never knew that people were pro Vladdy. I think that that's a pretty common thing among lots of fan bases is that there's going to be a contingent that just wants the best for the organization and is willing to kind of look the other way. And I think what the emailer described in terms of like, you know, once drama hits, you have the chance to bail on your guy and admit that you were wrong or double down and stick with it. And I do think it's pretty common, at least on message boards and, and you know, just, the, you know, even going back to my experience at Blazers Edge for a certain contingent to always want to be ride or die for the organization, kind of, you know, no matter what happens. Um, and that means, you know, saying things like in Vlade, we trust and, you know, going down that route. Sure. Um, so I guess, you know, it sounds to me like you're suggesting Chris should just try to go out there and, and fight these people. I mean, you think they shouldn't <laughs> exist is what you're saying. I'm, I'm not propo- a proponent of violence. No, I am not. That do not. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Um, I do think that, like I, I, I'm not. I don't think that Vlade has done a particularly great job uh, uh, last season's uh, surge, notwithstanding. To then get rid of Dave Yeager for, you know, there's a lot of reported reasons why he makes the decisions that he's made. Um, I think getting rid of Yeager was uh, not, nothing against Luke Walton, but that was probably a mistake and a very unusual move. Uh, I think that you know. Very few intelligent scouts and draft analysts had Marvin Bagley ranked ahead of Luka Doncic last year. And it's gotten to the point where, I mean, if you're Phoenix or you're Sacramento, passing on Doncic is just officially unforgivable. Uh, So fold the franchises? I mean, is that what we should do? Just contraction? Is that the only option? (laughs) Yeah. Potentially, I, 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 I don't know what's worse, passing on Doncic or signing Trevor Reza, which is what both of those organizations did. I mean, there's a common thread here of dysfunction and uh, just not really being with the boat. And so, specifically with this situation, the rationale for drafting Bagley ahead of of Doncic from the start was that he could not. That Doncic could not coexist with De'Aaron Fox, or uh, there was also uh, a rumor that they believed that Luca's ceiling was lower than Marvin Bagley's, and that Marvin Bagley could ultimately play the three, could play more positions, the four, the five. Uh, I, I mean, all those reasons just look really, really bad right now. I, I. I don't know. I feel like when you miss on a on a pick like this, it, it should cost you your job. And it's it's I, I'm not like happy to say something like that, but there are it's not like this is the first mistake and it won't be the last one. Right. Like gargantuan the, mistake that he makes. I think that's the key point. If he had an average track record or even a good track record, Doncic is the one that got away, right? It's like look. It was a very heated pre-draft process. We were in this position with a super high pick. We went through, we did everything diligently, and he just wound up being a lot better than we thought. Like that is somewhat defensible. But when you look at Vlade's body of work, I mean, first of all, Papa Giannis should have been the fireable one, right? Like, wasn't that the one where it was like, (laughs) wait a minute, what? Um, And, you know, God knows where he is. Uh, And that's actually another... uh, you know, an interesting parallel between his Trump analogy and uh, Vlade analogy. There's Papayanis in both situations, right? Um, <laughs> or no, I guess it's Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos, yeah. Yeah, okay, well. Close enough. You know, pa- yeah, you get what I'm saying. But, 
I think this should be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't know when you do it to kind of limit the damage to your organization and to ensure that you have a better uh, candidate in place, you know, to handle things going forward. But I don't know how he keeps his job after the last five or six years. I think the only salvation would be Bagley coming back and just being an absolute monster. And that's possible, but he still can't shoot threes and he still can't play defense really. So I don't know where the high ceiling and the immediate impact is going to come from once he's back healthy. So um, Chris, I apologize that you're dealing with all of that uh, on behalf of Vlade. You know, I'm sure you're probably never going to get an apology from him. I would recommend to Kings fans who are always anti-Vlade to just become Mavericks fans. Your life will be better. I know that's going to sound treasonous. The next 10 years of the Luka experience are going to be a wave and just ride it. Like it, it will, you'll be happy that you did. You will be glad to leave, you know, some of the toxicity of, of your current relationship in the background. All right, Michael, we're going to close up here real quick with surveys of people who told us how they listen to open floor. And remember last week we were talking about, do you listen while you're cooking? Do you listen while you're commuting? Do you listen while you're working out while you're in the shower? And, and I had what I thought was a pretty firm understanding of what I wanted the priority list to be. I want people listening when they're paying full attention on their car ride or when they're doing dishes, uh, when they're working out, I don't want to be li- listened to while they're trying to fall asleep. That's just you know too much for my heart to take. But little did we know that lots of people are listening in lots of different ways. The first email I just thought was hilarious. Now, you'll remember Joe from last week said he listens while he works on his jump shot. Carrie has proposed that we should randomly say, nice shot Joe at various points during the episodes. Like I sometimes say, sorry, Elizabeth, if there's profanity for this guy while he's working out just to kind of keep his motivation up during his workout. What do you think? Can we drop in a nice shot, Joe, every once in a while? I'm looking forward to doing this. Yes, I think this is a great idea. Nice shot, Joe. Carrie, you're now our producer. You've become uh, you've become <laughs> our production help. Great concept. I love it. We will execute. Eli writes, I'm an attorney and I love nothing more in the evening before the 7 p.m. Eastern tip-offs to sit down, put on open floor, and start up some call of duty to drown out the 12-year-old who is saying who knows what about my mother. Now, presumably that's the 12-year-old in the headset on the Call of Duty game and not his own 12-year-old talking poorly about his grandmother. Eli, you might have wanted to clarify that one slightly. Um, <laughs> do you play video games, Michael? I No. Short answer, no. I don't. Uh, I used to. Would you, would you be able to concentrate at an appropriate level to our podcast if you were also playing a video game at the same time? Because this feels like pretty far down the list. It feels a little bit too much like multitasking while working, and I don't like that, you know? No, I actually think that you're able to just, if it depends on what game you're playing and, and how much of how much focus is required, but... The games that I used to play, I would just be zoning out, trying to kill time, and I would listen to podcasts, my favorite podcasts, and they would entertain me as I was entertaining myself, if that makes any sense. So I I get this, and it should be received as a compliment. Okay, okay. You're you're talking me into it. I think it would be easier for like a basketball video game, like 2K, and we had some people write in to say that they listen while they're playing 2K, and every once in a while, I'll be talking while my little image comes up on the social feed of the 2K My Player mode, and that really gets to be like a full interactive experience, so glad I can uh, take care of you guys that way. I don't know what that meant. Uh, 
sounded like a little innuendo and I'm going to retreat. Heather <laughs> writes, I like to listen while I'm watering or taking care of flowers in my yard. Fortunately, I'm in California, so I get to do that all year long. Hey, great Western Conference elitism, Heather. I appreciate that. She adds, one request, please don't malign my Warriors too much. I'm not a new fan. My dad started season tickets in the early 70s, so those of us who've been around a while have been through the tough times before and know everything will work out. Awesome attitude, Heather. And I think gardening as a genre is way up there, arguably higher than the workout podcast because you're not getting tired. You're not, you know, getting fatigued necessarily. Um, you're involved in an activity that's stimulating your brain. You're outdoors getting sunshine. So you're probably in a good mood. I think gardening pod is a strong contender, like right up there with the commute pod in terms of most desirable pod. I think the, the, the best pod personally is just the, the lazy walk pod. I forget if I said that in the last pod that we did, but Gardening is, I do not garden, um, I do not have a yard, never have, but I kind of concur with everything that you just said, and it feels like listening to podcasts while gardening would give you the, as you said, you're in a good mood, you're able to focus on, I mean, gardening as it is itself does not require a ton of focus or energy, you're just kind of doing it, going through the motions. You're able to listen and 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 follow along with due diligence. So I'm I'm right with you. I think gardening is a good way to listen to podcasts. Yeah, and look, I want to be when people are kind of hitting that meditative zone, right? When they're like just really like opening their mind to you know expanding their worldview, and I feel like that happens with gardening, and also with this next one from Niv, who writes in from Israel. My favorite outdoor activity is rock climbing. I've climbed many places around the world, including some of the best climbing I've done on magnificent West Coast granite or southeastern sandstone. So this is how he proves he really knows the deal, uh, Michael. He's given us the, the specific texture of the rocks. However, however, as I've moved around a lot over the years, I can't always find climbing partners. And so at times, I'll go free soloing easy routes that I know well, always with earbuds and more often than not, listening to Open Floor or another podcast. Yet another thing podcasts are good for, entertaining you while you're out there alone on the rock. So Niv, I'm with you on all of this. This sounds great. I love Yosemite. I love the documentary they did about the guys climbing El Capitan and all of that. I just don't want you to be in a situation where you're climbing completely free with no brace up the side of a mountain I say something stupid or Michael says something brilliant, you fist pump because you're reacting to it or you know, you shout in anger and next thing we know, you're going tumbling off the side of a mountain. So I just need to make sure that please email back in, let me know that you've got the proper brace and technique and, and everything else to back you up because it is possible, I think, when it comes to whether it's humor or debates, this could actually endanger Niv's life. What do you think, Michael? Stay safe, Niv. That's that's really all that matters here. That's exactly all, right, all I was thinking about when I when I read that email. Please stay safe, right. Niv. Like Niv, now you're in my head. Like I'm good. I don't want to unleash the heaters because I don't want your body plummeting to the earth. Okay, so please, please be careful. Couple more. Levi writes. Okay, I know there's probably very few people that do this, but I play casual online chess on my phone for long stints rather than sleeping or doing my homework. You guys are my online chess podcast, and while it might not be the most prestigious category, this is how I listen. 
I'm with this one because you know, you're know you problem solving, you're staring at your phone, you're blocking everything else out, you're trying to get to a, a situation where you're winding down maybe, but you're also still mentally engaged. And we're almost like his coaches in this situation, Michael. Almost, Ben. Almost. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like online chess requires a good amount of concentration. So I don't know. I mean... It feels like, at least for me personally, my brain would be zoning, zoning in and out of what I'm actually listening to on the podcast, trying to to focus on what is happening in the chess game. So that's, I could not do it. So shout out to Levi for having the mental capacity. All right, the last one, and this is the one that's closest to my heart. It comes in from Zach. He says, "I have two different scenarios where Open Floor has been my go-to podcast." First, while carrying out lab work for my PhD. Science actually has a lot of monotonous tasks, so Open Floor has helped me stay sane. I have cloned multiple offspring listening to your podcast, and I'm about to graduate with my PhD, so thanks. Look, Zach, you couldn't have done it without us. I appreciate that a lot. Also, cloning multiple offspring, another innuendo that we should probably just leave alone. Second, while carrying out... I listen while carrying out some volunteer conservation work. Usually I will just listen to the sounds of nature and appreciate those, but sometimes I put on a podcast. I'm actually sending out a message from the middle of the forest on such an occasion. After listening to your latest episode, you can see the attached picture of a tracking tunnel that I use to detect the presence of unwanted predators. Man, I think that Zach has found the ultra- five-star method for listening to open floor which is <laughs> detecting and tracking unwanted predators in the forest as part of an overall volunteer conservation effort if that is not making the world better and the open floor glow better zach i don't know what is you are the champion listener mvp Zach is too accomplished, in my opinion. I, I the uh, it makes me feel though as as though I've contributed to a, someone getting their PhD. So that makes me feel great. So, Zach, you win. It's like when people win awards and they're like, "Oh, I'm so humbled by this honor," and you're like, "Sure you are," but right now, what you're really thinking is like, "No, I'm seriously humbled. Like, why the heck is this guy listening to us? Is that how you're feeling?" <laughs> exactly. It's a good Perfect. description. All right. On that note, Michael, we've reached the end of our episode for the week, guys. We are taking uh, the rest of the week off for the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you guys uh, who are here in the United States have a great time celebrating with your families around the world. You know, if you want to join in on this American tradition, I guess go for it. Um, If not, you know, that's fine. Don't kill the turkeys and just, you know, have a good time like you normally would. Um, Michael, we will reconvene next week for another episode of Open Floor, and we'll be back to two podcasts per week. Uh, next week uh, like usual in the meantime guys email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we want to know what do you think about the nba schedule proposals what do you think about cheating in the nba how would you cheat if you were a gm or a player and do you agree with ali from japan that honor should be a greater part of basketball 
Um, if you have other suggestions on how you're listening or how your friends listen to Open Floor, we'd always love to hear those too. You could tell from the outpouring of emails uh, that we've got people who are covering every base, and it's so fun and, and touching uh, to hear that. Not to get too corny, but I was very thankful reading through those emails this week. Uh, it fit right in line with the holiday spirit. All right, we're on Apple Podcasts. If you search for Open Floor, that's two words. Find the page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V, as in Victor, Pina. Until next week, Michael, I will talk to you. See you, Ben.